We begin with The Railway Children by E. Nesbitt. This story always reminds me of Jenny Agatha, obviously a favourite of hers. She played Roberta in the first version I saw, film version of this book. She then played Mother in a later version and she's also narrated an audiobook of the story. Wonderful voice, such talent. So, taking extracts from the first four chapters, we learn how the children suddenly have to leave their home and move to the country, their discovery of the railway and its people, and how it soon becomes the centre of their new lives. Chapter 1. The Beginning of Things They were not railway children to begin with. I don't suppose they had ever thought about railways, except as a means of getting to Masculine and Cook's, the pantomime, zoological gardens and Madame Tussauds. They were just ordinary suburban children and they lived with their father and mother in an ordinary red brick fronted villa with coloured glass in the front door, a tiled passage that was called a hall, a bathroom with hot and cold water, electric bells, French windows and a good deal of white paint and every modern convenience, as the house agents say. There were three of them. Roberta was the eldest. Of course, mothers never have favourites, but if their mother had had a favourite, it might have been Roberta. Next came Peter, who wished to be an engineer when he grew up, and the youngest was Phyllis, who meant extremely well. Mother did not spend all her time in paying dull calls to dull ladies and sitting dully at home waiting for dull ladies to pay calls to her. She was almost always there, ready to play with the children and read to them and help them to do their home lessons. Besides this, she used to write stories for them while they were at school and read them aloud after tea. And she always made up funny pieces of poetry for their birthdays and for other great occasions, such as the christening of the new kittens or the refurnishing of the doll's house or the time when they were getting over the mumps. These three lucky children always had everything they needed. Pretty clothes, good fires, a lovely nursery with heaps of toys and Mother Goose wallpaper. They had a kind and merry nursemaid and a dog who was called James and who was their very own. They also had a father who was just perfect, never cross, never unjust and always ready for a game. At least, if at any time he was not ready, he always had an excellent reason for it and explained the reason to the children so interestingly and funnily that they felt sure he couldn't help himself. You will think that they ought to have been very happy, and so they were. But they did not know how happy till the pretty life in the Red Villa was over and done with and they had to live a very different life indeed. The dreadful change came quite suddenly. Peter had a birthday, his tenth. Among his other presents was a model engine, more perfect than you could ever dream of. The other presents were full of charm, but the engine was fuller of charm than any of the others. Its charm lasted in its full perfection for exactly three days. Then, Owing either to Peter's inexperience or Phyllis's good intentions, which had been rather pressing, or to some other cause, the engine suddenly went off with a bang. James was so frightened that he went out and did not come back all day. All the Noah's Ark people who were in the tender were broken to bits, but nothing else was hurt except the poor little engine and the feelings of Peter. The others said he cried over it. But of course, boys of ten do not cry, however terrible the tragedies that may, may be which darken their lot. He said that his eyes were red because he had a cold. This turned out to be true, though Peter did not know it was when he said it. The next day he had to go to bed and stay there. Mother began to be afraid that he might be sickening for measles, when suddenly he sat up in bed and said, I hate gruel, I hate barley water, I hate bread and milk. I want to get up and have something real to eat. What would you like? Mother asked. A pigeon pie, said Peter eagerly. A large pigeon pie, a very large one. 
So Mother asked the cook to make a large pigeon pie. The pie was made. And when the pie was made, it was cooked. And when it was cooked, Peter ate some of it. After that, his cold was better. Mother made a piece of poetry to amuse him while the pie was being made. It began by saying what an unfortunate but worthy boy Peter was. Then it went on. He had an engine that he loved with all his heart and soul. And if he had a wish on earth, it was to keep it whole. One day, my friends, prepare your minds. I'm coming to the worst. Quite suddenly a screw went mad and then the boiler burst. With gloomy face, he picked it up and took it to his mother though even he could not suppose that she could make another. For those who perished on the line, he did not seem to care, his engine being more to him than all the people there. And now you see the reason why our Peter has been ill. He soothes his soul with pigeon pie, his gnawing grief to kill. He wraps himself in blankets warm and sleeps in bed till late, determined thus to overcome his miserable fate. And if his eyes are rather red, his cold must just excuse it. Offer him pie, you may be sure, he never will refuse it. Father had been away in the country for three or four days. All Peter's hopes for the curing of his afflicted engine were now fixed on his father. For father was most wonderfully clever with his fingers. He could mend all sorts of things. He had often acted as veterinary nurse to the wooden rocking horse. Once he had saved its life when all human aid was despaired of and the poor creature was given up for lost and even the carpenter said he didn't see his way to do anything. And it was father who mended the doll's cradle when no one else could and with a little glue and some bits of wood and a penknife made all the Noah's Ark beasts as strong on their pins as ever they were, if not stronger. Peter, with heroic unselfishness, did not say anything about his engine till, till after father had had his dinner and his after-dinner cigar. The unselfishness was mother's idea, but it was Peter who carried it out and he needed a good deal of patience too. At last, mother said to father, Now, dear, if you're quite rested and quite comfy, we want to tell you about the great railway accident and ask your advice. All right, said father, fire away. So then Peter told the sad tale and fetched what was left of the engine. Hmm, said father, when he'd had looked the engine over very carefully. The children held their breaths. Is there no hope, said Peter in a low, unsteady voice. Hope? Rather, tons of it, said father cheerfully. But it'll want something besides hope. A bit of brazing, say, or some solder and a new valve. I think we'd better keep it for a rainy day. In other words, I'll give up Saturday afternoon to it and you shall all help me. Can girls help to mend engines? Peter asked doubtfully. Of course they can. Girls are just as clever as boys and don't you forget it. How would you like to be an engine driver, Phil? My face would be always dirty, wouldn't it? said Phyllis in unenthusiastic tones. And I expect I should break something. I should just love it, said Roberta. Do you think I could when I'm grown up, Daddy? Or even a stoker? You mean a fireman, said Daddy, pulling and twisting at the engine. Well, if you still wish it, when you're grown up, we'll see about making you a firewoman. I remember when I was a boy... Just then there was a knock at the front door. Who on earth, said father. An Englishman's house is his castle, of course, but I do wish they built semi-detached villas with moats and drawbridges. Ruth, she was the parlour maid and had red hair, came in and said that two gentlemen wanted to see the master. I've shown them into the library, sir, she said. I expect it's a subscription to the vicar's testimonial, said mother, or else it's the choir holiday fund. Get rid of them quickly, dear. It does break up an evening so, and it's nearly the children's bedtime. But father did not seem to be able to get rid of the gentleman at all quickly. I wish we had got a moat and a drawbridge, said Roberta. 
Then, when we didn't want people, we could just pull up the drawbridge and no one else could get in. I expect Father will have forgotten about when he was a boy if they stay much longer. Mother tried to make the time pass by, telling them a new fairy story about a princess with green eyes. But it was difficult because they could hear the voices of Father and the gentleman in the library. And Father's voice sounded louder and different to the voice he generally used to people who came about testimonials and holiday funds. Then the library bell rang and everyone heaved a breath of relief. They're going now, said Phyllis. He's rung to have them shown out. But instead of showing anybody out, Ruth showed herself in. And she looked queer, the children thought. Please, mm, she said. The master wants you to just step into the study. He looks like the dead, mum. I think he's had bad news. You'd best prepare yourself for the worst, mum. Perhaps it's a death in the family or a bank busted or... That'll do, Ruth, said Mother gently. You can go. Then Mother went into the library. There was more talking. Then the bell rang again and Ruth fetched a cab. The children heard boots go out and down the steps. The cab drove away and the front door shut. Then Mother came in. Her dear face was as white as her lace collar and her eyes looked very big and shining. Her mouth looked like just a line of pale red. Her lips were thin and not their proper shape at all. It's bedtime, she said. Ruth will put you to bed. But you promised we should sit up late tonight because father's come home, said Phyllis. Father's been called away on business, said mother. Come, darlings, go at once. They kissed her and went. Roberta lingered to give mother an extra hug and to whisper, It wasn't bad news, Mammy, was it? Is anyone dead or... Nobody's dead, no, said mother. And she almost seemed to push Roberta away. I can't tell you anything now tonight, my pet. Go, dear, go now. So Roberta went. Ruth brushed the girls' hair and helped them to undress. Mother almost always did this herself. When she turned down the gas and left them, she found Peter, still dressed, waiting on the stairs. I say, Ruth, what's up? he asked. Don't ask me no questions and I won't tell you no lies, the red-headed Ruth replied. You'll know soon enough. Late that night, Mother came up and kissed all three children as they lay asleep. But Roberta was the only one whom the kiss woke and she lay mousy still and said nothing. If Mother doesn't want us to know she's been crying, she said to herself as she heard through the dark the catching of her mother's breath, we won't know it, that's all. When they came down to breakfast the next morning, Mother had already gone out. To London, Ruth said, and left them to their breakfast. There's something awful the matter, said Peter, breaking his egg. Ruth told me last night that we should know soon enough. Did you ask her, said Roberta with scorn. Yes, I did, said Peter angrily. If you could go to bed without caring whether Mother was worried or not, I couldn't, so there. I don't think we ought to ask Ruth things Mother doesn't tell us, said Roberta. That's right, Miss Goody Goody, said Peter. Preach away. I'm not Goody, said Phyllis, but I think Bobby's right this time. Of course she always is, in her own opinion, said Peter. Oh, don't, cried Roberta, putting down her egg spoon. Don't let's be horrid to each other. I'm sure some dire calamity is happening. Don't let's make it worse. Who began, I should like to know, said Peter. Roberta made an effort and answered. I did, I suppose, but well then, said Peter triumphantly. But before he went to the school, he thumped his sister between the shoulders and told her to cheer up. The children came home to one o'clock dinner, but Mother was not there, and she was not there at tea time. It was nearly seven before she came in, looking so ill and tired that the children felt they could not ask her any questions. She sank into an armchair. Phyllis took the long pins out of her hat, while Roberta took off her gloves, and Peter unfastened the walking shoes and fetched her soft, velvety slippers for her. When she had had a cup of tea 
and Roberta had put eau de cologne on her poor head that ached, Mother said, Now, my darlings, I want to tell you something. Those men last night did bring very bad news, and Father will be away for some time. I'm very worried about it, and I want you all to help me and not to make things harder for me. As if we would, said Roberta, holding her mother's hand against her face. You can help me very much, said Mother, by being good and happy and not quarrelling while I'm away. Roberta and Peter exchanged guilty glances, for I shall have to be away a good deal. We won't quarrel, indeed we won't, said everybody, and meant it too. Then Mother went on, I want you not to ask me any questions about this trouble, and not to ask anybody else any questions. Peter cringed and shuffled his boots on the carpet. You'll promise this too, won't you, said Mother? I did ask Ruth, said Peter suddenly. I'm very sorry, but I did. And what did she say? She said I should know soon enough. It isn't necessary for you to know anything about it, said Mother. It's about business, and you never do understand business, do you? No, said Roberta. Is it something to do with government? For Father was in a government office. Yes, said Mother. Now it's bedtime, my darlings, and don't you worry. It'll all come right in the end. Then don't you worry either, Mother, said Phyllis, and we'll all be as good as gold. Mother sighed and kissed them. We'll begin being good the first thing tomorrow morning, said Peter, as they went upstairs. Why not now, said Roberta. There's nothing good, nothing to be good about now, silly, said Peter. We might begin to try to feel good, said Phyllis, and not call names. Who's calling names, said Peter. Bobby knows right enough that when I say silly, it's just the same as if I say Bobby. Well, said Roberta, no, I don't mean what you mean. I mean it's just a, what is it father calls it? A germ of endearment. Good night. The girls folded up their clothes with more than usual neatness, which was the only way of being good that they could think of. I say, said Phyllis, smoothing out her pinafore, you used to say it was so dull, nothing happening like in books. Now something has happened. I never wanted things to happen to make Mother unhappy, said Roberta. Everything's perfectly horrid. Everything continued to be perfectly horrid for some weeks. Mother was nearly always out, and Aunt Emma came on a visit. Aunt Emma was much older than Mother. She was going abroad to be a governess. She was very busy getting her clothes ready, and they were very ugly, dingy clothes, and she had them always littering about, and the sewing machine seemed to whir on and on all day and most of the night. Aunt Emma believed in keeping children in their proper places, and they more than returned the compliment. Their idea of Aunt Emma's proper place was anywhere they were not, so they saw very little of her. Then came the time when Mother came home and went to bed and stayed there two days, and the doctor came, and the children crept wretchedly about the house and wondered if the world was coming to an end. Mother came down one morning to breakfast, very pale, with lines on her face that used not to be there. And she smiled as well as she could and said, Now, my pets, everything is settled. We're going to leave this house and go and live in the country. Such a ducky dear little white house. I know you'll love it. A whirling week of packing followed. Not just packing clothes, like when you go to the seaside, but packing chairs and tables covering their tops with sacking and their legs with straw. All sorts of things were packed, but you don't pack when you go to the seaside. Crockery, blankets, candlesticks, carpets, bedsteads, saucepans, and even fenders and fire irons. The house was like a furniture warehouse. I think the children enjoyed it very much. Mother was very busy, but not too busy now to talk to them and to read to them and even to make up a bit of poetry for Phyllis to cheer her up when she fell down with a screwdriver and ran it into her hand. When things had been packed up and taken away in a van by men in green baize aprons, 
The two girls and mother and Aunt Emma slept in the two spare rooms. All their beds had gone. A bed was made up for Peter on the drawing room sofa. I say, this is larks, he said, wriggling joyously as mother tucked him up. I do like moving. I wish we moved once a month. Mother laughed. I don't, she said. Good night, Peterkin. As she turned away, Roberta saw her face. She never forgot it. Oh, mother, she whispered all to herself as she got into bed. How brave you are. How I love you. Fancy being brave enough to laugh when you're feeling like that. Next day, boxes were filled, and boxes, and more boxes. And then late in the afternoon, a cab came to take them to the station. Aunt Emma saw them off. They felt that they were seeing her off, and they were glad of it. But, oh, those poor little foreign children that she's going to governess, whispered Phyllis. I wouldn't be them for anything. At first they enjoyed looking out of the window, but when it grew dusk they grew sleepier and sleepier, and no one knew how long they had been in the train, when they were roused by mothers shaking them gently and saying, Wake up, dears, we're there. They woke up, cold and melancholy, and stood shivering on the draughty platform while the baggage was taken out of the train. Then the engine, puffing and blowing, set to work again and dragged the train away. The children watched the tail lights of the guard's van disappear into the darkness. This was the first train the children saw on that railway, which was in time to become so very dear to them. They did not guess then how they would grow to love the railway and how soon it would become the centre of their new life, nor what wonders and changes it would bring to them. They only shivered and sneezed and hoped the walk to the new house would not be long. Peter's nose was colder than he ever remembered it to have been before. Roberta's hat was crooked and the elastic seemed tighter than usual. Phyllis's shoelace had come undone. Come, said Mother, we've got to walk. There aren't any cabs here. The walk was dark and muddy. The children stumbled a little on the rough road and once Phyllis absently fell into a puddle and was picked up damp and unhappy. There were no gas lamps on the road and the road was uphill. The cart went at a foot's pace and they followed the gritty crunch of its wheels. As their eyes got used to the darkness, they could see the mound of boxes swaying dimly in front of them. A long gate had to be opened for the cart to pass through and after that the road seemed to go across fields and now it went downhill. Presently a great dark lumpish thing showed over to the right. There's the house, said Mother. I wonder why she's shut the shutters. Who's she? asked Roberta. The woman I engaged to clean the place and put the furniture straight and get supper. There was a low wall and trees inside. That's the garden, said Mother. The cart went on along by the garden wall and round to the back of the house and here it clattered into a cobbled stone yard and stopped at the back door. There was no light in any of the windows. Everyone hammered at the door, but no one came. The man who drove the cart said he expected Mrs Viney had gone home. You see, your train was that late, said he. But she's got the key, said Mother. What are we to do? Oh, she'll have left that under the doorstep, said the cartman. Folks do, hereabouts. He took the lantern off his cart and stooped. Aye, here it is, right enough, he said. He unlocked the door and went in and set his lantern on the table. Got a candle, said he. I don't know where anything is. Mother spoke rather less cheerfully than usual. He struck a match. There was a candle on the table and he lighted it. By its thin glimmer the children saw a large bare kitchen with a stone floor. There were no curtains, no hearth rug. The kitchen table from home stood in the middle of the room. The chairs were in one corner, the pots, pans, brooms and crockery in another. There was no fire and the black grate showed cold, dead ashes. As the cartman turned to go, after he'd brought in the boxes, there was a rustling, scampering sound that seemed to come from inside the walls of the house. Oh, what's that? 
cried the girls. It's only the rats, said the cartman, and he went away and shut the door, and the sudden draught of it blew out the candle. Oh dear, said Phyllis, I wish we hadn't come, and she knocked a chair over. Only the rats, said Peter, in the dark. What fun, said Mother, in the dark, feeling for the matches on the table. How frightened the poor mice were. I don't believe they were rats at all. She struck a match and relighted the candle, and everyone looked at each other by its winky-blinky light. Well, she said, you've often wanted something to happen, and now it has. This is quite an adventure, isn't it? I told Mrs Viney to get us some bread and butter and meat and things, and to have supper ready. I suppose she's laid it in the dining room. Let's go and see. The dining room opened out of the kitchen. It looked much darker than the kitchen when they went in with one candle, because the kitchen was whitewashed, but the dining room was dark wood from floor to ceiling, and across the ceiling there were heavy black beams. There was a muddled maze of dusty furniture. The breakfast room furniture from the old home where they had lived all their lives. It seemed a very long time ago and a very long way off. There was the table, certainly, and there were the chairs, but there was no supper. Let's look in the other rooms, said Mother, and they looked, and in each room was the same kind of blundering half-arrangement of furniture, and fire irons and crockery and all sorts of odd things on the floor, but there was nothing to eat. Even in the pantry, there were only a rusty cake tin and a broken plate. What a horrid woman, said Mother. She's just walked off with the money and not got us anything to eat at all. Then shan't we have any supper at all? asked Phyllis, dismayed, stepping back onto a soap dish that cracked responsively. Oh yes, said Mother, only it'll mean unpacking one of those big cases that we put in the cellar. Phil, do mind where you're walking to. There's a dear. Peter, hold the light. The cellar door opened out of the kitchen. There were five wooden steps leading down. It wasn't a proper cellar at all, the children thought, because its ceiling went up as high as the kitchen's. A bacon rack hung under its ceiling. There was wood in it and coal, also the big cases. Peter held the candle all on one side, while Mother tried to open the packing case. It was very securely nailed down. Was where's the hammer? asked Peter. That's just it, said Mother. I'm afraid it's inside the box. But there's a coal shovel and there's the kitchen poker. And with these, she tried to get the case open. Let me do it, said Peter, thinking he could do it better himself. Everyone thinks this when he sees another person stirring a fire or opening a box or untying a knot in a bit of string. You'll hurt your hands, Mammy, said Roberta. Let me. I wish father was here, said Phyllis. He'd get it open in two shakes. What are you kicking me for, Bobby? I wasn't, said Roberta. Just then, the first of the long nails in the packing case began to come out with a scrunch. Then a lathe was raised, and then another, till all four stood up with the long nails in them shining fiercely like iron teeth in the candlelight. Hooray, said Mother. Here are some candles, the very first thing. You girls go and light them. You'll find some saucers and things. Just drop a little candle grease in the saucer and stick the candle upright in it. How many shall we light? As many as ever you like, said Mother gaily. The great thing is to be cheerful. Nobody can be cheerful in the dark, except owls and dormice. So the girls lighted candles. The head of the first match flew off and stuck to Phyllis's finger. But, as Roberta said, it was only a little burn, and she might have had to be a Roman martyr and be burned whole if she'd happened to live in the days when those things were fashionable. Then, when the dining room was lighted by fourteen candles, Roberta fetched coal and wood and lighted a fire. It's very cold for May, she said, feeling what a grown-up thing it was to say. The firelight and the candlelight made the dining room look very different. For now you could see that the dark walls were of wood, carved here and there with little wreaths and hoops. The girls hastily tidied the room, which meant putting the chairs against the wall and piling all the odds and ends into a corner, and partly hiding them with the big leather armchair 
that father used to sit in after dinner. Bravo, cried mother, coming in with a tray full of things. This is something like. I'll just get a tablecloth and then... The tablecloth was in a box with a proper lock that was opened with a key and not with a shovel. And when the cloth was spread on the table, a real feast was laid out on it. Everyone was very, very tired, but everyone cheered up at the sight of the funny and delightful supper. There were biscuits, the marry and the plain kind, sardines, preserved ginger, cooking raisins and candied peel and marmalade. What a good thing Aunt Emma packed up all the odds and ends out of the store cupboard, said Mother. Now, Phil, don't put the marmalade spoon in among the sardines. No, I won't, Mother, said Phyllis, and put it down among the marry biscuits. Let's drink Aunt Emma's health, said Roberta suddenly. What should we have done if she hadn't packed up these things? Here's to Aunt Emma. And the toast was drunk in ginger wine and water, out of willow-patterned teacups, because the glasses couldn't be found. They all felt that they'd been a little hard on Aunt Emma. She wasn't a nice, cuddly person like Mother. But after all, it was she who had thought of packing up the odds and ends of things to eat. It was Aunt Emma, too, who had aired all the sheets ready, and the men who had moved the furniture had put the bedsteads together, so the beds were soon made. Good night, chickies, said Mother. I'm sure there aren't any rats, but I'll leave my door open. And then if a mouse comes, you need only scream and I'll come and tell it exactly what I think of it. Then she went to her own room. Roberta worked, woke to hear the little travelling clock chime two. It sounded like a church clock ever so far away, she always thought. And she heard too Mother still moving about in her room. Next morning, Roberta woke Phyllis by pulling her hair gently, but quite enough for her purpose. What's the matter? asked Phyllis, still almost wholly asleep. Wake up, wake up, said Roberta. We're in the new house, don't you remember? Let's get up and begin to be useful. We'll just creep down mouse quietly and have everything beautiful before Mother gets up. I've woken Peter, he'll be dressed as soon as we are. So they dressed quietly and quickly. Of course, there was no water in their room, so when they got down, they washed as much as they thought was necessary under the spout of the pump in the yard. One pumped and the other washed. It was splashy, but interesting. It's much more fun than basin washing, said Roberta. How sparkly the weeds are between the stones and the moss on the roof. Oh, and the flowers. The roof of the back kitchen sloped down quite low. It was made of thatch and it had moss on it and house leeks and stone crop and wallflowers and even a clump of purple flag flowers at the far corner. This is far, far, far and away prettier than Edgecombe Villa, said Phyllis. I wonder what the garden's like. We mustn't think of the garden yet, said Roberta with earnest energy. Let's go in and begin to work. They lighted the fire and put the kettle on and they arranged the crockery for breakfast. They couldn't find all the right things, but a glass ashtray made an excellent salt cellar and a newish baking tin seemed as if it would do to put bread on, if they had any. When there seemed to be nothing more that they could do, they went out again into the fresh, bright morning. We'll go into the garden now, said Peter. But somehow they couldn't find the garden. They went round the house and round the house. The yard occupied the back, and across it were stables and outbuildings. On the other three sides, the house stood simply in a field, without a yard of garden to divide it from the short, smooth turf. And yet they had certainly seen the garden wall the night before. It was a hilly country. Down below, they could see the line of the railway, and the black, yawning mouth of a tunnel. The station was out of sight. There was a great bridge with tall arches running across one end of the valley. Never mind the garden, said Peter. Let's go down and look at the railway. There might be trains passing. We can see them from here, said Roberta slowly. Let's sit down a bit. So they all sat down on a great flat grey stone that had pushed itself up out of the grass. It was one of many that lay about on the hillside. 
and when Mother came out to look for them at eight o'clock, she found them deeply asleep in a contented, sun-warmed bunch. They'd made an excellent fire and had set the kettle on it at about half past five, so that by eight the fire had been out for some time, the water had all boiled away and the bottom was perned out of the kettle. Also, they had not thought of washing the crockery before they set the table. But it doesn't matter, the cups and saucers, I mean, said Mother, because I've found another room. I'd quite have forgotten there was one, and it's magic. And I've boiled the water for tea in a saucepan. The forgotten room opened out of the kitchen. In the agitation and half-darkness the night before, its door had been mistaken for a cupboard. It was a little square room, and on its table, all nicely set out, was a joint of cold roast beef with bread, butter, cheese and a pie. Pie for breakfast, cried Peter. How perfectly ripping. It isn't pigeon pie, said Mother. It's only apple pie. Well, this is the supper we ought to have had last night. And there was a note from Mrs Viney. Her son-in-law has broken his arm and she had to go home early. She's coming this morning at ten. That was a wonderful breakfast. It's unusual to bring, begin the day with cold apple pie, but the children all said they would rather have that than meat. You see, it's more like dinner than breakfast to us, said Peter, passing his plate for more, because we were up so early. The day passed in helping Mother to unpack and arrange things. Six small legs quite ached with running about, while their owners carried clothes and crockery and all sorts of things to their proper places. It was not till quite late in the afternoon that Mother said, There, that'll do for today. I'll lie down for an hour so as to be fresh as a lark by supper time. Then they all looked at each other. Each of the three expressive countenances expressed the same thought. That thought was double and consisted, like the bits of information in the Child's Guide to Knowledge, of a question and an answer. Question, where shall we go? Answer, to the railway. So to the railway they went, and as soon as they started for the railway, they saw where the garden had hidden itself. It was right behind the stables, and it had a high wall all round it. Oh, never mind about the garden now, cried Peter. Mother told me this morning where it was. It'll keep till tomorrow. Let's go to the railway. The way to the railway was all downhill over smooth, short turf, with here and there furze bushes and grey and yellow rocks sticking out like candied peel from the top of a cake. The way ended in a steep run and a wooden fence, and there was the railway with the shining metals and the telegraph wires and posts and signals. They all climbed onto the top of the fence, and then suddenly there was a rumbling sound that made them look along the line to the right, where the dark mouth of a tunnel opened itself in the face of a rocky cliff. Next moment, a train had rushed out of the tunnel with a shriek and a snort and had slid noisily past them. They felt the rush of its passing and the pebbles on the line jumped and rattled under it as it went by. Oh, said Roberta, drawing a long breath. It was like a great, great dragon tearing by. Did you feel it fan us with its hot wings? I suppose the dragon's lair might look very like that tunnel from the outside, said Phyllis. But Peter said, I never thought we should get as near to a train as this. It's the most ripping sport. Better than toy engines, isn't it, said Roberta. I'm tired of calling Roberta by her name. I don't see why I should. No one else did. Everyone else called her Bobby, and I don't see why I shouldn't. I don't know, it's different, said Peter. It seems so odd to see all of a train. It's awfully tall, isn't it? We've always seen them cut in half by platforms, said Phyllis. I wonder if that train was going to London, Bobby said. London's where father is. Let's go down to the station and find out, said Peter. So they went. They walked along the edge of the line and heard the telegraph wires humming over their heads. When you are in the train, it seems such a little way between post and post, and one after another the posts seem to catch up the, the wires almost more quickly than you can count them. But when you have to walk, 
the posts seemed few and far between. But the children got to the station at last. Never before had any of them been at a station, except for the purpose of catching trains, or perhaps waiting for them, and always with grown-ups in attendance, grown-ups who were not themselves interested in stations, except as places from which they wished to get away. Never before had they passed close enough to a signal box to be able to notice the wires, and to hear the mysterious ping-ping, followed by the strong, firm clicking of machinery. The very sleepers on which the rails lay were a delightful path to travel by, just far enough apart to serve as the stepping stones in a game of foaming torrents hastily organised by Bobby. Then, to arrive at the station, not through the booking office, but in a freebooting sort of way by the sloping end of the platform, this in itself was joy. Joy too it was to peep into the porter's room, where the lamps are, and the railway almanac on the wall, and one porter half asleep behind a newspaper. There are a great many crossing lines at the station. Some of them just ran into a yard and stopped short, as though they were tired of business and meant to retire for good. Tracks stood on the rails here, and on one side was a great heap of coal. Not a loose heap, such as you see in your coal cellar, but a sort of solid building of coals, with large square blocks of coal outside, used just as though they were bricks, and built up till the heap looked like the picture of the cities of the plain in Bible stories for infants. There was a line of whitewash near the top of the coaly wall. When presently the porter lounged out of his room, at the twice-repeated tingling thrill of a gong going over the station door, Peter said, How do you do? in his best manner, and hastened to ask what the white mark was on the coal for. To mark how much coal there be, said the porter, so as we'll know if anyone nicks it. So don't you go off with none in your pockets, young gentleman. The children soon got used to being without father, though they didn't forget him. And they got used to not going to school, and to seeing very little of mother, who was now almost all day shut in her upstairs room, writing, writing, writing. She used to come down at tea time and read aloud the stories she had written. They were lovely stories. The rocks and hills and valleys and trees, the canal and above all the railway, were so new and so perfectly pleasing that the remembrance of the old life in the villa grew to seem almost like a dream. They had lived all their lives in a street where cabs and omnibuses rumbled by at all hours and the carts of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers I never saw a, can- saw a candle maker's cart, did you? might occur at any moment. Here in the deep silence of the sleeping country the only things that went by were their trains. They seemed to be all that was left to link the children to the old life they had once that had once been theirs. Straight down the hill in front of three chimneys, the daily passage of their six feet began to mark a path across the crisp, short turf. They began to know the hours when certain trains passed, and they gave names to them. The 9.15 up was called the Green Dragon. The 10.7 down was the Worm of Wantley. The Midnight Town Express, whose shrieking rush they sometimes woke from their dreams to hear, was the fearsome fly-by-night. Peter got up once in chill starshine and peeping at it through his curtains named it on the spot. It was by the Green Dragon that the old gentleman travelled. He was a very nice-looking old gentleman and he looked as if he were nice too, which is not at all the same thing. He had a fresh-coloured, clean-shaven face and white hair, and he wore rather odd-shaped collars and a top hat that wasn't exactly the same kind as other people's. Of course, the children didn't see all this at first. In fact, the first thing they noticed about the old gentleman was his hand. It was one morning as they sat on the fence waiting for the green dragon, which was three and a quarter minutes late by Peter's Waterbury watch that he'd been given on his last birthday. The green dragon's going where father is, said Phyllis. If it were a really real dragon, we could stop it and ask it to take our love to father. Dragons don't carry people's love, said Peter. They'd be above it. Yes, they do, 
If you tame them thoroughly first, they fetch and carry like pet spaniels, said Phyllis, and feed out of your hand. I wonder why father never writes to us. Mother says he's been too busy, said Bobby, but he'll write soon, she says. I say, Phyllis suggested, let's all wave to the green dragon as it goes by. If it's a magic dragon, it'll understand and take our loves to father. And if it isn't, three waves aren't much, we shall never miss them. So when the green dragon tore shrieking out of the mouth of its dark lair, which was the tunnel, all three children stood on the railing and waved their pocket handkerchiefs, without stopping to think whether they were clean handkerchiefs or the reverse. They were, as a matter of fact, very much the reverse. And out of a first-class carriage, a hand waved back. A quite clean hand. It held a newspaper. It was the old gentleman's hand. After this, it became the custom for waves to be exchanged between the children and the 9.15. And the children, especially the girls, liked to think that perhaps the old gentleman knew father and would meet him in business, wherever that shady retreat might be, and tell him how his three children stood on a rail far away in the green country and waved their love to him every morning, wet or fine. For they were now able to go out in all sorts of weather, such as they would never have been allowed to go out in when they lived in their villa house. This was Aunt Emma's doing, and the children felt more and more that they had not been quite fair to this unattractive aunt when they found how useful were the long gaiters and waterproof coats that they had laughed at her for buying for them. Mother all this time was very busy with her writing. She used to send off a good many long blue envelopes with stories in them, and large envelopes of different sizes and colours used to come to her. Sometimes she would sigh when she opened them and say, Another story come home to roost. Oh dear, oh dear. And then the children would be very sorry. But sometimes she would wave the envelope in the air and say, Hooray, hooray, here's a sensible editor. He's taken my story and this is the proof of it. At first the children thought the proof meant the letter the sensible editor had written, but they presently got to know that the proof was long slips of paper with the story printed on them. Whenever an editor was sensible, there were buns for tea. Next day, when they had sent the threefold wave of greeting to father by the green dragon, and the old gentleman had waved back as usual, Peter led the way to the station. They reached the station and spent a joyous two hours with the porter. He was a worthy man and seemed never tired of answering the questions that began with why, which many people in higher ranks of life often seem weary of. He told them many things that they had not known before, as, for instance, that the things that hook carriages together are called couplings, and that the pipes, like great serpents that hang over the couplings, are meant to stop the train with. If you could get a hold of one of them when the train is going and pull them apart, he said, she'd stop dead off with a jerk. Who's she? said Phyllis. The train, of course, said the porter. After that, the train was never again it to the ch children. And you know the thing in the carriages where it says on it, five pounds fine for improper use. If you were to improperly use that, the train would stop. And if you used it properly, said Roberta... It has stopped just the same, I suppose, he said, but it isn't proper use unless you're being murdered. There was an old lady once. Someone kidded her on that it was a refreshment room bell and she used it improper, not being in danger of her life, though hungry. And when the train stopped and the guard came along expecting to find someone weltering in their last moments, she says, oh, please, mister, I'll take a glass of stout and a bath bun, she says. And the train was seven minutes behind her time as it was. What did the guard say to the old lady? I don't know, replied the porter. But I'll lay she didn't forget it in a hurry, whatever it was. In such delightful conversation, the time went by all too quickly. The station master came out once or twice from behind that sacred inner temple, behind the place where the hole is that they sell you tickets through. It was most jolly with them all. He gave them each an orange 
and promised to take them up into the signal box one of these days when he wasn't so busy. Several trains went through the station and Peter noticed for the first time that engines have numbers on them, like cabs. Yes, said the porter. I know a young gent has used to take down the numbers of every single one he seed. In a green notebook with silver corners it was, owing to his father being very well-to-do in the wholesale stationery. Peter felt that he could take down numbers too, even if he was not the son of a wholesale stationer. As he did not happen to have a green leather notebook with silver corners, the porter gave him a yellow envelope, and on it he noted 379-663, and felt that this was the beginning of what would be a most interesting collection. That night at tea he asked Mother if she had a green leather notebook with silver corners. She had not, but when she heard what he wanted it for, she gave him a little black one. It has a few pages torn out, she said, but it will hold quite a lot of numbers, and when it's full I'll give you another. I'm so glad you like the railway, only please, you mustn't walk on the line. Not if we face the way the train's coming, asked Peter, with a gloomy pause, in which glances of despair were exchanged. No, really not, said Mother. Then Phyllis said, Mother, didn't you ever walk on the railway lines when you were little? Mother was an honest and honourable mother, so she had to say yes. Well then, said Phyllis, but darlings, you don't know how fond I am of you. What should I do if you got hurt? Are you fonder of us than Granny was of you when you were little? Phyllis asked. Bobby made signs to her to stop. But Phyllis never did see signs, no matter how plain they might be. Mother did not answer for a minute. She got up to put more water in the teapot. No one, she said at last, ever loved anyone more than my mother loved me. Then she was quiet again, and Bobby kicked Phyllis under the table, because Bobby understood a little bit the thoughts that were making Mother so quiet. The thoughts of the time when Mother was a little girl, and was all the world to her mother. It seems so easy and natural to run to mother when one is in trouble. Bobby understood a little how people do not leave off running to their mothers when they are in trouble, even when they are grown yeah. up, and she thought she knew a little what it must be to be sad and have no mother to run to any more. So she kicked Phyllis, who said, What are you kicking me like that for, Bobby? And their mother laughed a little and sighed and said, very well then, only let me be sure you do know which way the trains come and don't walk on the line near the tunnel or near corners. Trains keep to the left like carriages, said Peter, so if we keep to the right, we're bound to see them coming. Very well, said Mother, and I dare say you think that she ought not to have said it, but she remembered about when she was a little girl herself, and she did say it, and neither of her own children, nor you, nor any other children in the world, could ever understand exactly what it cost her to do it. Only some of you, like Bobby, may understand a very little bit. Next day was Roberta's birthday. In the afternoon, she was politely but firmly requested to get out of the way and keep there till tea time. You aren't to see what we're going to do till it's done. It's a glorious surprise, said Phyllis. And Roberta went out into the garden all alone. She tried to be grateful, but she felt she would much rather have helped in whatever it was than have to spend her birthday afternoon by herself, no matter how glorious the surprise might be. Phyllis and Peter met her at the back door. They were unnaturally clean and neat, and Phyllis had a red bow in her hair. There was only just time for Bobby to make herself tidy and tie up her hair with a blue bow before a little bell rang. There, said Phyllis, that's to show that the surprise is ready. Now you wait till the bell rings again and then you may come into the dining room. So Bobby waited. Tinkle, tinkle, said the little bell and Bobby went into the dining room, feeling rather shy. Directly she opened the door, she found herself as it seemed in a new world of light and flowers and singing. Mother and Peter and Phyllis were standing in a row at the end of the table. The shutters were shut and there were twelve candles on the table, one for each of Roberta's years. 
The table was covered with a sort of pattern of flowers, and at Roberta's place was a thick wreath of forget-me-nots and several most interesting little packages. Her mother and Phyllis and Peter were singing to the first part of the tune of St Patrick's Day. Roberta knew that Mother had written the words on purpose for her birthday. It was a little way of Mother's it was a little way of Mother's on birthdays. It had begun on Bobby's fourth birthday, when Phyllis was a baby. Bobby remembered learning the verse to say to Father for a surprise. She wondered if Mother had remembered too. The four year old verse had been Daddy dear, I'm only four, and I'd rather not be more. Four's the nicest age to be, two and two and one and three. What I love is two and two, Mother, Peter, Phil and you. What you love is one and three, Mother, Peter, Phil and me. Give your little girl a kiss because she learned and told you this. The song the others were singing now went like this. Our darling Roberta, no sorrow shall hurt her if we can prevent it her whole life long. Her birth is our fate day, we'll make it our great day and give her our presents and sing her our song. May pleasures attend her and may the fates send her the happiest journey a life long, along her life's way with skies bright above her and dear ones to love her. Dear Bob, many happy returns of the day. When they had finished singing, they cried, Three cheers for our Bobby! and gave them very loudly. Bobby felt exactly as, she, as though she were going to cry. You know that odd feeling in the bridge of your nose and the pricking in your eyelids? But before she had time to begin, they were all kissing and hugging her. Now, said Mother, look at your presents. They were very nice presents. There was a green and red needle book that Phyllis had made herself in secret moments. There was a darling little silver brooch of Mother's, shaped like a buttercup, which Bobby had known and loved for years but which she had never, never thought would come to be her very own. There was also a pair of blue glass vases from Mrs Viney. Roberta had seen and admired them in the village shop, and there were three birthday cards with pretty pictures and wishes. Mother fitted the forget-me-not crown on Bobby's brown head. And now look at the table, she said. There was a cake on the table, covered with white sugar, with Dear Bobby on it in pink sweets. And there were buns and jam. But the nicest thing was that the big table was almost covered with flowers. Wallflowers were laid all round the tea tray. There was a ring of forget-me-nots round each plate. The cake had a wreath of white lilac round it, and in the middle was something that looked like a pattern, all done with single blooms of lilac or wallflower or laburnum. It's a map, a map of the railway, cried Peter. Look, those lilac lines are the metals, and there's the station done in brown wallflowers. The laburnum is the train, and there are the signal boxes, and the road up here, and those fat red daisies are us three waving us three waving to the old gentleman. That's him, the pansy in the laburnum train. And there's three chimneys done in the purple primroses, said Phyllis. And that tiny little rosebud is mother looking out for us when we're late for tea. Peter invented it all, and we got all the flowers from the station. We thought you'd like it better. That's my present, said Peter, suddenly dumping down his adored steam engine on the table in front of her. Its tender had been lined with fresh white paper and was full of sweets. Oh, Peter, cried Bobby, quite overcome by this munificence. Not your own dear little engine that you're so fond of. Oh, no, said Peter very promptly the engine, only the sweets. Bobby couldn't help her face changing a little, not so much because she was disappointed at not getting the engine, as because she had thought it so very noble of Peter, and now she felt she'd been silly to think it, and also she felt she must have seemed greedy to expect the engine as well as the sweets. So her face changed. Peter saw it. He hesitated a minute, then his face changed too, and he said, I mean, not all the engine. I'll let you go halves if you like. You're a brick, cried Bobby. It's a splendid present. She said no more aloud, but to herself she said, That was awfully jolly decent of Peter, because I know he didn't mean to. Well, the broken half shall be my half of the engine, and I'll get it mended and give it back to Peter for his birthday. 
Yes, mother dear, I should like to cut the cake, she added, and tea began. It was a delightful birthday. After tea, mother played games with them, any game they liked, and of course their first choice was Blind Man's Buff, in the course of which Bobby's forget-me-not wreath twisted itself crookedly over one of her ears and stayed there. Then, when it was near bedtime and time to calm down, Mother had a lovely new story to read them. You won't sit up late working, will you, Mother? Bobby asked as they said good night. And Mother said no, she wouldn't. She would only just write to Father and then go to bed. But when Bobby crept down later to bring up her presents, for she felt she really could not be separated from them all night, Mother was not writing, but leaning her head on her arms and her arms on the table. I think it was rather good of Bobby to slip quietly away, saying over and over, She doesn't want me to know that she's unhappy, and I won't know. I won't. But it made a sad end to the birthday. Hope you enjoyed listening. Tune in again as we follow more adventures with Bobby, Peter and Phil. See you next time.